0: My name is five letters in total. I loved it uh, in school when you had to fill in your name and fill in those bubbles. It was always done faster than anyone. And I always felt bad for people who had the longer last names or longer names and couldn't fit their names in all the bubbles, right? Yeah, we probably all had friends like that. It was also good uh, quite a few times in elementary. I had many teachers do this when I was younger. I don't know if you guys had this experience where they would ask you to take your name and write an acrostic, right? S, super, A is for awesome, M, I don't know, I remember getting stuck, Uh, (laughs) M, right? When you're in elementary school, it's hard, M, Uh, what was that? You know, I don't know, money, maybe it should be opposite of, Oh, opposite of money, right? And, And, you know, five letters is... Really easy. That was another thing I usually finished before my friends and classmates. We get to Psalm 119, and this is an acrostic, right? It's exactly what we just talked about, except in the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 letters. So for each letter, all right, eight lines, eight verses each. So you take eight times 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, you get 176 verses. This is quite a psalm. It's, it's it's. I mean, I would have gotten stuck, right? The passage we read today, if you look in your Bible, it might actually say Aleph as your heading. That is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So every line in this verse begins with Aleph, the Hebrew A, first letter of the alphabet. I know it's not... There's no possible way to do that in the translation to English. Imagine if they had to try to do that somehow. That would, that, then that would, even the translation then would have been quite an accomplishment. But, you know, it is one of the longest psalms. It's pretty amazing if you think about uh, this acrostic. And Tremper Longman categorizes this psalm as a wisdom psalm. All right. Wisdom literature in the Old Testament, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, is, is probably a little bit familiar to you. You get the Proverbs. But one thing that you see a lot in, in wisdom literature are two paths in life. All right. And it's this choice. It's, it's like this. There's the wise decision. There's the path that we should take. All right. And often it's portrayed and described as the path or way of life, of righteousness of blessedness, of wisdom. And the other path is often portrayed as the path of wickedness, as the path of death, as the path of foolishness. And it's often, though, the path that we we choose to take as people. Well, Psalm 119, I think, starts off also by presenting that two-path kind of theology and theme. And here you have the way, the path of the blessed, and it's the path of life, it's the path of wisdom, okay? Um, And so, the way I've divided or organized uh, my uh, message today is when we look at that first eight verses of Psalm 119, all right? It presents the way, the path of blessedness, all right? And it's in two parts. The first part, the first four verses, I'm going to be talking about the way of that blessedness, uh, the the character of that, what it really means, what it involves, what it means for those who are on that path. And then the second part of this, I think, first eight verses is the hope of the blessed, all right, the prayers of of the people that are on that path. So if if you're kind of going in and out, you know, I always encourage you to stay with me, but if, if for whatever reason you're daydreaming about something else for a couple minutes and you find your way back, try to figure out which section we're on, either the first section or the second section, all right? All right, the way of the blessed, verses 1 to 4. Okay, the way of the blessed. Blessed. In the Hebrew, there's actually two words that we translate into the English word blessed. Two different words. One of the words, all right, and this is my best Hebrew pronunciation, barach. All right, so, you know, that word is A word that talks about, the if we use it to talk about like God blessing his people, his church, then it's this idea of God loving his people, God caring for his people, and God providing benefit and showing favor to his people, God blessing his church. If we talk about it in a way with that same Hebrew word for us blessing God, because you'll see that in the Psalms, bless the Lord, bless the name of the Lord, then it's talking about us using our words as an act of adoration, as an act of worship, all right? That's us blessing God. It's not about us bestowing our favors upon God. God doesn't need our favors. There's very little, I mean, scratch. There's nothing we could do for God, right? But with our words, we're worshiping him, we're adoring him, we're loving him, and that's what it means to bless him. However, the word that's translated blessed here in Psalm 119, as well as Psalm 1, parts of what we read today probably remind you of Psalm 1, where we started our series, is a different Hebrew word, and it's translated as to be happy. To be happy. Now, in the Hebrew, it's actually the plural form of that word. And the reason why they use the plural form is because apparently there's not as many adjectives in the old Hebrew biblical language. So, you know, in English, if we want to say fun and we say more fun, and then if you really want to have bad grammar, you could say the most funnest, right? But we keep using other words to try to up the intensity. Well, one of the literary ways to do that with Hebrew is to make it a plural form. So what you're doing by that is you're saying a multiplicity or an intensification of that happiness. So a lot of commentators, pastors, theologians will translate what we have here in Psalm 119.1 as this intense, supreme happiness and joy. Blessedness. One of the things that we have to be careful today because of the way we use happy in our sort of common you know everyday usage of that word is we tend to think of happiness as something that's directly connected to external circumstances if i get dessert after dinner i use that word oh man i'm happy if i get a good cup of, uh, good what did i say Cop? good cup of coffee i try to shorten cup and coffee almost a copy Good cup of coffee in the morning, I feel happy, right? Uh, I get to go watch a Laker game, oh, I'm happy. You know, my team, my favorite team that I follow wins the game, I'm happy. So we kind of use that word a little bit differently than the word here in Psalm 119. The word here talks about this intense, supreme, internal joy that is not dependent upon all of those swinging external circumstances and events that happen to us on a daily, even momentary basis. So then this form of ultimate happiness, supreme happiness, intense joy, this blessedness, that Psalm 119 is talking about. This happiness, this is something that I think I can rightly and fairly say is a universal goal. It's something that everyone wants. If you don't want this, I think you are probably a little bit different from most people. John Calvin says, all men, all men naturally aspire after happiness. But here's the problem. Instead of searching for it in the right path, they designedly prefer wandering up and down through endless bypaths to their ruin and destruction. That is, a, uh, to, to illustrate that, it would be many of us when we're driving and we refuse to look up the di- directions of how to go to somewhere we're not familiar with. And we'll find our own way, right? And, and we're going all around or we get lost. That's the image of men who we know where we want to be. We know what we want in life. We all want to be happy. We all want this blessed life and this path. You see, Psalm 119 actually lays it out for us. It tells us what this blessed life is all about. In fact, James Boyce says this, apart from being instructed by God, Human beings do not know how to achieve happiness. Do not know how to achieve happiness. So I'll say this, and this is kind of like if I was a blogger, maybe I would have titled my, um, my sermon like uh, The Ultimate Key to Supreme Happiness. That might get some clicks, right? If, if you saw that title. right? The three keys to being happy every day of your life and always, forever. Might get some clicks. That might be a a fitting understanding, at least to the introduction here, of blessedness. Now, the first point I wanna make about blessedness and what this psalmist is trying to present to us. The temptation might be to look at this first verse, all right, we'll shoot it up there, Okay, blessed are those whose way is blameless or supremely happy are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Maybe one of the things we might be tempted to do is think, all right, well, here is how we can do it. Here's here's a cause and effect relationship. If I walk in the law of the Lord, if I do this, then my reward is this blessed life. So if I obey God's law, then he's gonna give to me happiness. I think that's a mistake, but it's a mistake in the way we tend to think, because it's just the way we've been trained in life. Everything is about if you do this, you get this. If you do this well, then you get this as your prize or reward. But for the psalmist here, the blessed life simply is the life of living in the way of the Lord. The walking, the living, the obeying, that that life itself is already the blessedness. You guys understand? That's the first point to understand. He's saying that that is the happy life. That is the joyful life. It's not a separate reward like if you obey, then God will give you some kind of like, you know, multi-millions and all of these other things that will make us happy. The blessed life is here, living and walking in the way of the Lord. Now, walking means, I think, and involves a couple of things. If we are to walk in the way of the Lord, because here's the blessed life, so let's try to understand that a little bit more. The first thing and the first aspect to this is you have to know the law of the Lord. And if we don't know it, then we have to be on a journey in doing what? Learning, being instructed, gaining that knowledge of the law of the Lord. Now, technically, the law of the Lord can be referred to as the Torah or the first five books, the Ten Commandments, the heart of God in terms of do this or don't do this, but really when we Understand what the psalmist is describing here. I think it's fair to say that the law being described in 119 is the totality of God's revelation to us. Everything that God reveals to us about who he is, about what he wants, about what pleases him, about how he created mankind and his desire for the church. The complete totality of scripture is the law that we have to be walking in. First step, knowing and learning and understanding it. The amazing thing is, is that God gives to us probably the most complete revelation about himself. It's more complete than anything else given. Think about who you know best. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your brother or your sister. Someone that you feel like, I know him or her the best in my life. But that person that you know the best has never written to you thousands of pages describing his or her heart. At best, you have a few letters, at best, you have conversations, experiences, shared experiences, but you don't have the complete revelation that God has given to us. The Word. The law, he tells us, he spells it out for us. And the first step of walking in the way of the Lord, the law of the Lord, is learning it. I could plug right now so many things. I could plug the book club, right? I could plug our Bible studies. Um, And I would love to see more of us signing up for those things. I would love to see it. Because then it means we're figuring out, all right, what is the law of the Lord? Second aspect of walking in that path is not just knowing it, but living according to it. It's conforming. So walking actually means that it's a way of life for you. It's a path of life. It's talking about how we live. More than just head knowledge it actually, you know, and you know, you hear pastors talk about, okay, here's the practical application of the word. That's what it is. It's applying it to how what we do on Monday mornings, or when we're at work, when we're with our friends, uh, throughout life. So it's talking about what we do not just on Sundays, not just when we're at church, but every day. This may sound a uh, little bit. Maybe some of you think, ah, oh, you know. Living according, all right, this is like old school legalism or something. We're just, we're just gonna, we gotta figure out the do's and don'ts, or we gotta figure out what makes God happy, etc. No, I mean, I think if you read Psalm 119, which I will encourage all of you to do uh, after you leave this place, I think you'll see that this psalm is full of grace, full of dependence upon God's loving kindness and mercy, especially for life and salvation. But, What it also portrays really well is that the reason why this path of living according to the law of the Lord is blessedness, supreme joy, is because the alternative, the alternative is not an alternative. Have you ever made a decision in life because you looked at the two choices you've had and you said, well, one is not an option, so we're going with two, right? Right? I wonder if that's how my wife picked me. (laughs) She had, ah, that's, okay, better of two options. I'll go that way. It's a joke. It's a joke, but, um, yeah, the the alternative to walking according to the law of the Lord is living a self-serving, right, listen to this. This is the alternative. To live a self-serving, selfish, self-serving, self-sufficient life that leads to self-destruction. That's option B. It's a bad option. Psalm one nineteen twenty nine 29 says this, put, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. See, the opposite of learning the law is following false ways. There are numerous false ways. There are numerous wrong paths that we can take. If you're like me, we we tend to go that way. Psalm 119, 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The problem with living for yourself, the problem with not making God's laws the standard of your life, is the only other option is to make your laws the standard. And that's going to fall short because we're sinful. We make something, if if we set ourselves up as the ultimate law bringer and law giver, if we make ourselves the goal of our lives, the problem is we are not worthy. Can you turn to someone and say, hey, you know, like imagine if I turn to my wife and I said, Susan, you should live every day of your life for me. You should live to make me happy. You should live to see me smile, to please me. You should live to worship me. What I say should be the law. Uh, You know, at least once a week, you should set apart a day, and that day should only be about worshiping me. And then you should give me your money. And then you should thank me every day for this. Every, every moment, you should pray to me. You should write songs and sing them to me about how great I am and everything I've done for you. I mean, what would, what would my wife do? I'll tell you right now, she wouldn't do that. <laughs> Just in case you guys are wondering. I, I would feel bad even saying that to someone, right? I'd be like, oh my God, I can't, this is ridiculous. How could I ask this of someone? And yet... That's what we do with ourselves. We say, today, how can I live for myself? Today, how can I worship myself? Today, how can I sing and glorify myself? Today, what can I do to to set my name up for all of the world to see, to hear, to remember? How, How can I do this? And you know what? You are not worth it. If you can't tell your wife to do that, you shouldn't tell yourself to do that. Psalm 119, 37 says, Clearly, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Not that we're worthless, but you know what? We are not deserving of worship. God is. Give me life in your ways. Verse 37. So you see, the minute we say, the moment we say, yeah, that is what makes my life meaningful. That is what gives my life purpose. Not being self-serving, self-ruling, self-sufficient, self-destructing, but lifting up God to his rightful place and saying, I wanna live for him. The minute we do that, we understand what it means to live a blameless life, verse one, what it means to, to do no wrong. It, it, those phrases, right, blameless, that word uh, in verse three where it says, you know. Um, who who do no wrong, it's not talking about someone who never sins. There is no such person. We all sin. And yet we see in Scripture that people are described as blameless. Job, Job was described as blameless and upright. It's not talking about someone without sin. It's talking about someone who says, I will live for God and not for myself. So you can't accuse them of walking down the wrong path. They're innocent of that. They may struggle with how that applies every day. They may struggle with that maybe a lot of times. But you can't look at them and say, oh yeah, they're just living for themselves. In that sense, there is blamelessness. But the key to all of this and the key to walking in God's law is found in verse 2, I think. Because it's not only about knowing God's law, and it's not only about living out God's law, it's not only about living for something that's worth it, it's about doing it with our whole heart. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. See, that's the key. It's not empty obedience. It's not religiosity. It's not just coming to church because that's what you do on Sundays. It's not just doing something because you have nothing better to do. It's giving your heart, love, and adoration to the one who deserves it. I have a funny story. and I th- Well, I think it's funny. I didn't think it was so funny back then. It's a little embarrassing because my wife is here. I don't don't know if I've ever told her this, but when, when I was in college, there was a girl I asked out on a date. And it was a simple, I still remember it was CPK. It was a simple request. And she said, no. All right. I asked her again. She said, no. And I said, all right, one more time. And I asked her, and she said, Okay. I'm a little excited about this. You can imagine, this was when I was a young kid. We go to CPK, and the first thing she does is she wants to clarify the situation. And she wants to explain why she said yes and why she agreed to go to dinner with me. And she explained to me that she had no romantic interest. she didn't see me in that way at all. you know, that she saw me as a friend and thought we could just have a nice dinner together that i was paying for i thought and so right away i was like wow i mean i didn't say it out loud but in my mind i thought i want to go home it was like the worst dinner of my life because i was not i i have friends my friends are guys because that's who i like to hang out with I don't ask them out to CPK and buy dinner for them. We'll go to In-N-Out and everyone pays for whatever you're ordering. If you want a double-double, you pay for that double-double. God does not want us to come to church and clarify the situation. Look, God, I'm here because, you know, I want to be your friend. I'm here today at church because, you know, I know it's in your word, and it's kind of cool. I hear some good things. I have some good friends. It's good for my kids. That's why they want to be here. I mean, it's great that you're here if those are the reasons that you're coming to church, and I still want to encourage you to keep coming out. But ultimately, he wants our heart. Right? Amen? He wants us to love him. He wants us to pursue him. He's a jealous God. Now, it would be sinful for us to be jealous, but for God to be jealous, it is only right. He should make us and desire us to love him more than anything else and to worship him more than anything else because that is what is the right thing to do. If he encouraged us to love other things, if he encouraged us to pursue worthless things, he would not be a good God if he encouraged us to take the wrong path. The hope of the blessed, that's the way of the blessed. The path and the way of the blessed is knowing him, knowing his laws, pursuing him, seeking him with our whole heart. The hope of the blessed then begins in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, all right? Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Here we see an admission that he's not where he wants to be yet. He struggles like you and I. He wants to be somewhere. He has a goal in his Christian walk, but you know what? Sometimes his mind and his heart wants it more than his life is able to perform. And so he has this prayer: "Only if I was steadfast in following, in walking this way, and living this out, and keeping your statutes." He doesn't desire just simply a few moments of obedience. He doesn't want to be that guy who can sprint 100 yards the fastest and then struggle for the next 100 yards and then sprint another 100 yards and then struggle again. He doesn't want the ups and downs. He wants to be steadfast. Not to be swayed back and forth. Not to be moved, but to be able to stand strong and firm in his belief. to state of course. It's a strong desire to grow. And maybe many of us have not made this our prayer enough. To be steadfast. To say, Lord, oh, that my ways, that my ways may be steadfast. That I would not only choose the right way. Not only that I would go on that blessed way. But that I would be steadfast in going that way. Because there's obstacles for us. Sometimes the obstacles are big. Sometimes they're small. But there are obstacles. There's things that divert our attention. There's things that cause us to maybe want to go the other path or things. But ah, only I was steadfast. Second thing that is the hope of the blessed is found in verse six. I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. It's this desire to not be put to shame. Now, for us, shame has that, uh, to be embarrassed, you know, you do something and it's just, I mean, there can be small moments of embarrassment, but shame, we usually think of like a bigger, more extreme form of embarrassment, something more serious, more intense. However, in Psalms, uh, this is not what we're talking about when we hear the word shame. And I'm just going to, there's many verses that talk about this, but I'm just going to point out two real quick for us. Psalm 31.1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. All right? So in you do I take refuge. All right? Think about that. Verse 71.1. Again, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. And I could have put many more for us, but it's this idea then that All right, God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is our protection. God is our shield. He is our help. We cannot go through life without him. There are things that are out of our control. There are enemies that we face that just we feel helpless against. There are times when we're so tired of things or life is just beating us up so badly, we seek refuge. We seek rest, protection from the things that are being thrown at us. You know what that feels like? to seek refuge, to say, I need protection. Well, the opposite of that refuge is this, the shame of not having a God, the shame of having no help, the shame of not having God's protection, the shame of that abandonment and rejection by God. And so the desire and the hope of the blessed is that we will always have a place to run to, a place that is our refuge, a place that is our shield, and it is the Lord himself. When we have nowhere else to turn. When we've been trying to do it by ourselves, that self-life, and we realize it's not working. It's empty. It's not satisfactory. It's incomplete. And the third thing that the the, the blessed people hope for and pray for is found in verse 8. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. To be forsaken means God is distant from you. God has removed his presence from you. God has turned his back upon you. God has left you to your own resources. So you would cry for help. You would cry for his presence. You would cry for deliverance and for salvation. But if God were to forsake you, all those cries would go unanswered. One thing I want to really point out to us today is the blessed life for us today, you guys, this life of joy in living that way of the Lord, that path of the Lord according to the word of God, we may have the same prayers as this psalmist in 119. We don't want to be shamed. We don't want to you know, be on our own. We don't want to be forsaken. We don't want to have a place we don't want to have no options, a place we can't seek refuge. But the thing is, our hopes, our prayers, are not uncertain prayers of hope. right? There's one usage of hope where it's like, you know, I hope for whatever, fill in the blank, and maybe it's this uncertain thing in the future, we don't know, maybe I hope for this job, we don't know if we're going to get it, but if... God's will is, you know, if it's in his plan, we'll get it. If not, all right, maybe it's something else. Or maybe, you know, we have hopes for our children. You know, I hope my child does, you know, goes to whatever, this such and such school, or it becomes this kind of person, or whatever. You know, we have these hopes. We don't know if it's going to happen, but that's not the idea of the Christian hope when Paul talks about hope. When I talk about hope this morning, what we're talking about something that is actually certain for us, We know it's coming, but it's still just not fully there yet. For example, we know one day we will be blameless. We know there's a day coming when we go to the kingdom of heaven when we'll be without sin. It's not that we hope for that with uncertainty. We just know we're not there yet. Our hopes have been fulfilled because Christ was put to shame. The most extreme and ultimate shame. Even though he was the only one to truly be blameless. Even though he was the only one who could actually point to Psalm 119.1. Who could actually say, blessed are those whose way is blameless. And he could go, oh yeah, I was actually literally Blameless. Or we could look at verse three, who also do no wrong, and he could go, yeah, I actually literally did no wrong. Because of that holiness, he was able to take on being utterly forsaken, being refused the refuge of the Father, so that we would never face that. We would never face that. And he chose that path, Because he loved us. And because he wanted to make available to us the path of blessedness. Amen? So may we see Christ with our whole hearts. And as we seek him, may that lead us to walk in his ways. And may that lead us to be blessed to experience that joy. May that lead us to want to be steadfast in our walks. May that lead us to obey him better and keep his statutes. And may all of that lead us to what's described in verse 7. Verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart gives us reason to sing. When we meet to celebrate our friends' birthdays or our relatives' birthdays, it gives us a reason to sing. You know what? I only sing two two places in life. One is at church, and one is at birthday parties. I'm not proud of my voice, so I usually keep it to myself. But those are valid reasons to sing, and I think Praising Him for the life of blessedness, that path of blessedness that he's made available to us, is better reason to sing than even happy birthday songs for our friends. May we see Christ with our whole hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminders found in Psalm 119. We only briefly looked at verse, verses one to eight, but the Aleph section, the first letter of the alphabet in this long acrostic, but we pray that already there are things for us to be challenged and encouraged by, and we pray that we would walk this life of blessedness, that we would choose that path. We may not be perfect in it, but Lord, that that would be the path we walk and live, Lord. Dearly Father, make your love and grace and mercy plain to us so that we would be properly motivated by your love and by your gospel. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. This time we're going to give our offer.